Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodman, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, this is the very first person that walked across the stage for Writers of the Future on, on Volume 1 mm -hmm. and received his uh, Certificate of Recognition. Welcome, Dean Wesley Smith. Uh, thanks for having me. Yes. Fun to be here. Yeah, it's great. And you've been a, a judge for Rise of the Future. You were the mm -hmm. first person to receive the recognition on it. And you've got some of the most amazing, incredible publishing credentials of anybody. So I'm, I'm very anxious to be able to have this interview. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the key is, is just being around for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing you mentioned when we were preparing on this was um, you said a special goal. And mm -hmm. I think this is just itself just spectacular. So what is that special goal you had for your 70th year? Um, I decided we have our own publishing company, my wife and I. My wife is Christine Catherine Rush. And uh, we have our own publishing company that we set up um, when basically when the Kindle started, you know, wait, it's been what, 12, 13, 14 years yeah. now. And um, we have um, quite a few employees and things. And we have almost a thousand books that we put out through WMG Publishing. Um, of one form or another, mostly just me and Chris. Right. Um, and um, I decided that I wanted to really challenge myself with the writing and everything else on my 70th year um, you know, on the planet. And so I decided to put out 70 major books, publish 70 books in my 70th year. Um, that includes novels, um, uh, collections, I count novellas because they're, you know, 25 or 30,000 words, and also um, things that I edit, books that I edit that I am the editor and I have my name on the cover. Basically, the idea is if my name is in big letters on the cover, it counts. Um, I'm not counting short stories because that would be too easy um, yeah. because I write 50 or 60 short stories a year just on average. Um, so I'm doing that this year um, for 70 major books, and I am one month away from my 71st birthday, and I am only four books short at the moment. I'm almost going to make it. And, uh, and I have four collections that I'm putting together really quick that, uh, you know, because I have a lot of short stories. So I'm putting these four collections, and that'll be the last four. So I will make 70 in my 70th year. That's and amazing. It's, it's because it's possible with indie publishing these days. And so I will publish more books in one year than most writers do in their entire career. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Plus so about 50 short stories. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've got a, a magazine that you, a monthly issue mm -hmm. where you have a very limited payroll because you only have one author. Me. Yeah. It's called Smith's Monthly. <laughs> um, I am, frighteningly enough, I don't know how it did this, but um, um, I'm on issue 55. And, uh, and that's, it's about, it's the same size as Asimov or Analog or one of those. Um, I do it every month and it is, um, I put usually a novel in it and then I'll have something I'm serializing, either a nonfiction book or something like that. And then four or five original short stories, every issue, month after month after month. Wow. And, and I'm on issue 55 right now. I took a, a couple year hiatus when Chris got sick. So uh, I actually, between I think it was issue 42 and 43, there was a two and a half year gap where I just stopped, took care of Chris, got her back healthy, and then started back up again. But I'm on 55 now and it's still going. Amazing. Some of those monthly deadlines are kind of rough. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, great. It does pretty well with subscriptions to it. It's a big. It's a big magazine. It's the size of a, you know, double column. It's a big magazine. Yeah. It's like a regular newsstand magazine. That's that's amazing. I mean, you're obviously you you epitomize the definition of a professional writer. Yeah, I'm prolific. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'm one. I'm considered one of the most prolific writers in the in, that's functioning still. They're still alive. There's been, mm. uh, but I'm not the most prolific because there are people who are far more prolific than I am. But uh, I'm in the top 10. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, when we talked earlier on, when I, I, this is years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, it has been. <laughs> yes. The, um, we discussed you know, the, uh, the, the writing habits of, of L. Ron Hubbard. Mm -hmm. And you said, at one point, you said you, at the beginning of your career, this is mm -hmm. way back at the beginning, because we're almost four decades old now as, yeah. as the writers of the future. Yeah. But um, that 
one of your objectives was emulating Owen Hubbard on his speed of writing because he was mm -hmm. he was a really a high output author. Mm -hmm. Describe that a little bit as like you know what you got from him as as an author, and you know in terms of his speed of writing and, mm -hmm. and putting out versus how you've come to go. Um. The pulp writers, as he was uh, back in the in the pulp days, mm -hmm. you know, and and he transitioned into the the book days. But uh, he started off in the pulp, and that's when he was really prolific. Right. Um, I actually came up studying because I'm I'm a collector. Um, I used to be. I've kind of trimmed down now. <laughs> yeah. But uh, um, he was. I studied the pulp writers, and he was one of the top pulp writers. Um, there was uh, Lester Dent, who did the Doc Savages, and Perry Mason, um, who did the Perry Mason mm -hmm. guys, which was uh, Earl Stanley Gardner, mm -hmm. and also A.A. A. Fair, which is also Earl Stanley Gardner. Um, so there were five or six that were like L. Ron Hubbard. They were very prolific, um, and I studied them all. And what I liked about L. Ron Hubbard's work is that he crossed genres. You know, he would write westerns, he would write science fiction, he would, you know, and he would move on the genres and sometimes move magazines and things. Um, I really like that about him. I, I am the same way. I write, I have a very popular mystery series. I'm sort of known for my Star Trek back in the day, back in the previous century, um, things like that. And so I'm the, that kind of writer where I really move. I can't really stay I mean, I have a lot of series that have 10 or 12 or 15 books in the series, mm -hmm. but that's taken me 10 or 12 or 15 years to write that many books in that series because I will write one book in a series and then I'll completely move to another genre and do another series and do something different. And uh, so I am, I like that about Hubbard a lot, um, is, is that unlike uh, the Lester Dent or, or Earl Stanley Gardner, who only wrote the legal fiction mostly, I liked switching around. And yeah. so he was the, the top, like, oh, that's possible. You know, and, and I like that a lot. Yeah. yeah, there's one of the essays that he wrote called Manuscript Factory. Mm -hmm. And he went through and he actually analyzed how much he made per word, per genre. Mm -hmm. Because different genres, different magazines paid different rates. And so yep. he found, he worked out, and it would it'd fluctuate, you know, oh. over the <laughs> 20 years or so that, you know, I'm making more money per word on uh, Western or on mystery mm -hmm. or science fiction or fantasy yeah. type thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't even <clears throat> really pay attention on that. Um, I think I did early on, especially when I was working traditional publishing, um, but um, I, I don't pay attention on that anymore. I, I just write what I want to write. And, you know, and, and I feel I'll have more passion and, and I'll be there. So I don't write to market at all mm -hmm. anymore. Now, this is coming from me who wrote 35 Star Trek books and, <laughs> you know, and I wrote Men in Black and I wrote, you know, Spider-Man and X-Men and all these books to market. Um, and I was hired by the publishers to write specific books. That was, again, back in the 90s <laughs> and right. late 80s. Um, and now, uh, since I, I paid my dues on that, I don't really like that restraint um, of what it does on my creative voice. I would rather just write what I want to write. If I actually follow that now, what I should be writing mm -hmm. um, is my Cold Poker Gang series, which is a mystery series, basically retired detectives in Las Vegas solving cold cases. And, uh, that's, and it's a... I don't know, 12 or 13 books now. Um, when I started writing it, I just published them. I, I would call it Publishing Dark, Publishing Cold. I never pronounced, I never did anything. I never promoted them. I never did it. I just put them out. And they kind of were selling a couple books a month. You know, each book was selling two or three copies a month. And I didn't care. I just didn't care. And then one day, it kind of just exploded. And I went to the top of all the bestseller lists and everything else with it. And it's my bestselling series. So if I was writing only for money and only what was paying me the best, I'd be writing only that mystery series. But no, I write science fiction series and stuff that you know sell one or two copies a month, right. and uh, I'm perfectly fine. And uh, I don't care. I just what I want to write. And yeah. So I think it takes a while to get to that point in comfort with what you're doing. Although mm -hmm. I really try to teach that that you don't pay attention to writing to market. You pay attention to writing what you love. But as I say that, of course, I get invited into collections and I get invited like to write for the story on Bob Eggleton's wonderful cover mm -hmm. on, what was that, 35, I think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so that's writing to market. Yeah. And so I will sometimes go, oh, yeah, that would be fun. And I will write to market. 
So there's a balance in there that everybody has to find as a writer. Yeah. And one thing particular with, with Elwin Hubbard when he was mm -hmm. doing that, he was writing three days a week, two hours a day to mm -hmm. produce his 100,000 words a month. Mm -hmm. And he was doing that to pay for his research instead of his doing on his more serious works. Mm -hmm. So he had to go for what's going to get him. What's going to pay the bills. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So oh, get, I, so know that, I know research. that one. Every writer goes through that phase. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wrote some books that to this day I kind of wonder, what was I thinking? And I was thinking dollars and cents is what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> and how to pay the rent for next month. So. Yeah, so I mean that's a very it is you gotta do it. You've gotta do it. You're the Yeah. If that's gonna be how you're gonna pay the bills and, and keep the, oh, I went the roof. Yeah, I went freelance in nineteen eighty seven and for the next twenty years before I got to this enviable position that I can write what I want because I have enough money and I can do what I want now. You know, I wrote a lot to market just exactly like Elrond. Yeah. You know, going, Oh, that's gonna pay that pays the most. And yeah. Yeah, I took some jobs uh, ghosting for major writers that uh, you know would pay a half a year in bills just by writing a novel for some major writer. And uh, that you got sick or something, and they'd already, the publisher already had the book promoted, and they needed the book. They needed the content, and the writer wasn't providing the content. So they would come to me and hire me to, they knew I could do it fast, and I could imitate that author. And so I've had number one New York Times bestsellers under another author's name um, because, you know, just I could imitate. So skills, you got to pick up skills if you're going to make a living. Yeah. So now you've also um, grown with a workshop that you've got, or is it multiple workshops? Uh, what occurred is, is Chris and I back in the 90s, people wanted to know, because we had had Pulp House Publishing, mm -hmm. which was a, an independent publisher. It was the fifth largest publisher in science fiction, fantasy, and horror, period among all of them. Um, and that was about five years running is that we were at that status. Um, and we had started it from two young writers, just started it out of the blue and it kind of got crazy and grew. Um, and we had 19 employees in a two-story office building. And it was just, <laughs> it was stupid is what it was. But we had a real good time and we learned a lot. And when it closed down in the mid-90s, um, what occurred was um, Chris and I, people were asking us these publishing questions. How do we do this? How do we do that? So we went around um, at conventions and just did an hour or two hour talk. And they, people started calling it the Dean and Chris show. And then we started up in, we lived in Lincoln City, Oregon on the Oregon coast. And um, um, we said, well, we're tired of going out. Why don't we bring people here? So we started some workshops. And this was in 1999 was the first one. And then after a while, people said, well, we can't come all the way to the Oregon coast. Can you put this online? So about 12, 13 years ago, I started an online class. And I said, I'm only going to do this for a little while. Well, it's now 15 years later. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's on Teachable, which is a teaching platform. And uh, I record videos and for topics. And we have all kinds of stuff. We have regular workshops. We have you name it. And on almost any topic in writing and in publishing, in craft and in publishing, it's on there somewhere. And, um, and we're constantly coming up with new stuff. And, you know, we, it's just great fun. I think we have two or 300 different classes now. So you can pretty well find anything you're looking for. Yeah. And um, you can find it all, information on how to get to it on my website, which is deanwesleysmith.com. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's continuous and it's grown I never thought I'd still be doing this 15 years later. Right. You know, and, but it's every time we start a new workshop and then Chris and I sit down and we put it together and we lay it all out and how do we teach this? How would we get this across? How do we get this concept across to writers of all levels? Um, and so we're constantly learning. And so this is keeping us learning and fresh and challenged and everything else. Because, I mean, right now we're doing um, – something that most people wouldn't even know what it is. And it's called power words and how long, you know, we, we always teach the top level. So how does someone like a Dean Koontz or a Stephen King or someone like that that's working at the top of their craft, how do they use power words to convey emotion to a reader's subconscious? That's the kind of workshops we're doing right now. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's everything from how do you pull readers into stories to um, how do you publish things like that. We just, we do it all. And it's, it takes, you know, a couple hours of, of my day every day 
on this, all the teaching. And but it's all recorded. And then once I record it, it's there. It's there. For and I do on some of the classes. There's homework where I'll read people's stuff and things. And so, but yeah, okay. it's so it's, that's going, it's a paid it's, workshop that people sign up for. Yeah, they're paid. They're all paid. Yeah, we we don't do. We have one free one where we teach how to how writers to get on Kickstarter and do a Kickstarter for their novels or stuff. Yeah, that's the only free class we have. All the rest you got to pay because it's not worth it if you don't pay. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. bottom line. Yeah, <laughs> people don't don't value something they don't pay for. Well, that's um, that's good. So that's how you've transitioned as well to. I guess part of paying it forward, mm-hmm. making it for possible for that. Yeah, and other things like what you guys do with Writers of the Future. I love yeah. to come down and be part of this. Yeah. Now, you were at the original, the very first workshop in Taos, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. So what, a little bit of, like, what was that like? Is that, was, was that your first workshop? Well, no, we had, I had a, we'd started, I'd started some workshops um, before. They were, you know, the bootstrap workshops where you just, your friends that want to yeah. be writers get together. Um, that was the first professional level workshop. Um, and I started to realize at that point that, that wow, this is valuable. Um, what that was was Algis Budras um, put this together because he knew that the writers coming through Writers of the Future, like I was a couple years earlier, um, needed some professional advice and advice from L. Ron Hubbard and, you know, and mm-hmm. other stuff like that. And so um, he invited 12 writers that he thought were going to make it, you know, that came out of Writers of the Future and or like my wife, Chris. That's just where I met Chris. Was it a Writers of the Future? Yeah. <laughs> AJ actually had me pick her up in Albuquerque. And, um, and you never put her down. <laughs> I, I, no, we've been together for 35 years since. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just, uh, it was invaluable. It was, Jack, it was Algis Budras, Jack Williamson, Grandmaster, Fred Pohl, Grandmaster, Gene Wolfe, you know. Yeah. And the four of them and the 12 of us beginners. Yeah, I mean, all, all, all of four us, of them judges for yep, the contest. All, yeah. yeah, and we had basically just spent a week with them. And mostly it was going over articles and some of the teachings that, you know, that A.J. had taken out of L. Ron Hubbard's stuff. I think you guys are still pretty much doing the same class. Exactly. And it was unbelievably valuable. I mean, that that was the turning point, not only meeting Chris, but having that professional advice from four people that I had admired my entire life. I mean, I think A.J.'s book was, Algis Budras' book was one of the first adult books I read you know, as as a ten or twelve year old back in the fifties, and, uh, and and so you know, having Algis Butters, Jack Williamson, who published his first short story in nineteen twenty eight, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, you just you don't get better. Yeah, and that's what's going on. What you guys hear? I mean, you have what Scott Card and Tim Tim Powers and and uh, yeah, you know, you know, I mean, you just don't get better. And then all the people coming. Plus, in. we got all the people now who won the contest came from contests like yourself, Eric mm-hmm. Flint. Dave Farland, he was mm-hmm. the grand prize winner in volume three. Yep. Sean Williams, he's not here this year, but he he was a winner. So we've got yep. several of our judges are winners, or you people like um, Rob Sawyer, mm-hmm. who although he didn't win the contest, he he was given the, a critique from AJ mm-hmm. that he used that turned one of his short stories into a novel that then disqualified him for the contest because it became professionally well, my wife, published. My wife never made it into the book either. Kevin Anderson never made it into the book. It's really hard to get in this book. <laughs> I mean, it, it, when you actually look back at it, and but they're both judges. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so that's the kind of thing that is really valuable to the new writers coming in. And, and the, to be honest with you, the deadline. I, mean, I don't think you guys realize that quarterly deadline, how many people are, you know, my students that, that are coming in, you know, I don't consider them my students. I just, they're just writers I'm helping, right. you know, but, you know, I'll, I'll, every quarter when it comes up, it's like, I got to get my story done for Writers of the Future. Or I got to do, you know, and it, it drives writing, writers to write. And I don't know how much you guys realize what it drives out there in the, in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> Those deadlines are, are really... Uh, motivating, you know. Yeah, what's interesting is our review on Rise of Future Volume 35 from mm-hmm. one of the top library review mm-hmm. publications said that nothing has contributed more towards the genre of science fiction and fantasy mm-hmm. than Writers of well, the Future. 100% agree. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Hubbard's idea for this contest was just off the charts brilliant, you know, and, and you, you look at it. Now, 
I copied the contest. You guys know that. Yeah. You know, when I, I was at Star Trek, working at Star Trek and writing for Star Trek, and John Ordover, the editor, was trying to figure out how to get, because there was only five of us in the whole Star Trek stable at that point in time. They couldn't get, they couldn't figure out a way to get other writers. And I said, well, let's just imitate writers of the future. And he goes, can we do that? And I said, well, you got to set it up as a contest because of the copyright issues and everything else like that. And he said, so he just looked at what you guys were doing here at Writers of the Future and set it up. And that's where Strange New Worlds came from. And he came to me and he said, Dean, you can edit this. You're an editor. Cause, and I went, well, yeah, I could. You know, I edited Pulp House. I edited VB Tech and other stuff. And, and I said, yeah, I could do that. And so for 10 years, we had a yearly book imitating, and it was only writers that were brand new, that it didn't have three published stories. It was exactly what you guys were doing, but it was only Star Trek stories. And I got to read about, I don't know, I think we got two, 3,000 a year of these Star Trek stories, but we only had one deadline. It was only a year, yeah. once a year. And uh, um, they would turn in these stories, and, uh, and I would have to weed it down to 17. And for Strange New Worlds. Now Strange New Worlds is going to be the new series, you know, the new mm -hmm. Star Trek series. But uh, for 10 years, I edited Strange New Worlds, which is why I couldn't be a judge here, because I couldn't be a judge on Writers of the Future and yeah. be the only editor on Strange, Strange New, new Worlds. Because yeah. both of them were beginning writer contests. And then when that ended, after 10 years, then I could become finally yeah, you know, say, yes, I could be a judge. Yeah. yeah. And so, but it was great fun. So you guys, this Did it accomplish its purpose? Oh, 100%. So yeah. this oh, yeah. the, grew and I'm, I was, for the longest time, the most prolific Star Trek writer. I have 35 Star Trek books. I mean, I didn't think anybody was going to beat that. I bought in the very first issue uh, a story from Dayton Ward, and then he sold me one in the second issue, and then he sold me one in the third issue, and, and he couldn't buy, sell any more then because he was out, yeah. of the, out of the rules. And he is now the most prolific. I think he's just gone by me on Star Trek writers, on authors. He's one of the best. He's unbelievably good, um, which is why I bought three stories from him. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it, exactly. It, it brought in a whole new stable of young writers and then built the Star Trek community. Which is what obviously the Rise of the Future does. It, exactly. It in, the bigger, stable, in, the in the bigger world. Exactly. You do it in the bigger world, Star Trek did it in the Star Trek world. And uh, yeah, it, it worked out 100%. And it, it, you know, so Hubbard's idea was just brilliant. It was just brilliant. You know, and you look back on it and go, how in the heck do you guys survive in 38 years of this now? That's, that all by itself is mind numbing. No, I don't know of any other anthology series in, mm -hmm. in science fiction, fantasy, or anywhere that survived 38 years. It just, you know, no. some of them would go five or ten, but uh, I know of none other. You're the and it only keeps one. And on getting bigger. We're up, I don't say on set, but we get thousands of entries oh, yeah. a quarter now. Oh, I would put a wager. Yeah. <laughs> From just what I see through the classes. Yeah. Yeah. There's all on that. And then the Illustrator Contest, too, which has just grown yeah. immensely. And also because of, you know, five folks like yourself who just, you know, you spread out there and they know that if you put your name Mm -hmm. To it, then it's like, wow, it's got you and like I said, Scott Card, mm -hmm. you know, Tim Powers, all these. The we've been around a while. The, beh <laughs> the behemoths of yeah. of science fiction and fantasy. We're the one. We're the survivors of science fiction. Because <laughs> yeah. you look at uh, that very first one that I went to, that was at Chasen's. Mm -hmm. um, most people don't even know what that restaurant was anymore now, but it was really famous that you guys got yeah, in that in Hollywood, first time. Yeah. Really I forever. walked in the door and there was Robert Silverberg and Jack Williamson and Harlan Ellison, and they were all there at that first. Even Vogt was there. Yeah, Vogt. Yep, all yeah. of them. And I mean, I remember as a young writer and looking at this table of all these giants at the time and thinking, oh, God, I'd love to just talk to one of them, you know, and they ended up spreading out and talking to all of us. But uh, um, now it's, you know, all of them are gone, which is really sad. They were all, all became my friends over the mm -hmm. years. Um, but then um, now you look and say, well, it must be really weird to have Todd McCaffrey and Dean Smith and Kevin Anderson and all that sitting there at a table and these young writers coming in and going, oh, you know, and I, exactly I remember do. that feeling so well from 38 years ago. Or I remember it. And, uh, you know, and now I realize, so I, we make, and Kevin realizes it too. And so we all make time to go try to f talk to the writers if they'll just talk to us. <laughs> They're usually too afraid to talk to yeah. us. And, uh, and it's like, no, we're just like you are. We started the same way, you know, we just have survived. Which is what they're hoping to be able to do and, exactly. to, and to learn from you and to be able to, to yeah. make that transition from being 
aspiring, now they're professional because they've just been published uh-huh. in a professional publication. Yep. As the contest grows, the people that are entering, the, the, the ones that when the winnowing process gets done, like I said, mm-hmm. there's many, many, many you know, that get winnowed out of it. But we now have a couple hundred honorable mentions a quarter because there's that many people and it's just the, the line between. Well, the quality's up too. Exactly. The quality. As, as a judge, I'm noticing as the years have gone by, the quality has come up. And, uh, you know, because they're, you know. Exactly. I mean, I would edit differently if I was, if I was saying, I, you know, because I get stories, which is the way it should be. I get stories, you know, as the judge, and I'll get, what, six or eight stories sometimes from eight, yeah. And I'll look at them and go, no, no. Oh, God, I love this story. No. You know, because it's just taste. When it gets up to that level of writing, it becomes taste. Yeah. And my taste is different than whatever Dave's doing or, yeah. or the editors, you know, before I get it. And, uh, and that's, that's the way it should be. You know, I, I think it's, I mean, if I looked and went, oh, I like all eight of these, I would be in trouble. You know, yeah. but now I'm finding that I'm looking and going, I got to weed this down to three and I got five I really like. <laughs> How do I do that? Yeah. You know, and so I'd publish all five of these, you know. Which can't, is can't do that. <laughs> yeah, which is one thing that's good about the honorable mentions that we have now, like mm-hmm. I said, because there are so many great stories. But when people start putting that on their resumes, mm-hmm. then it automatically takes them out of the slush pile from other editors. This is right. You know, because it's just, it just, it, it's grown so much in recognition and yeah, just recognition of when someone gets that level within mm-hmm. writers of the future, because they, it's all known now that it's blind judging. So. Yeah. If they get it, it's not because they're a name or they're something else. It's just strictly raw their their work that makes that. Yeah. And what's really amazing is I haven't yet got a story that I recognize. You know, I would keep thinking, oh, some of these stories, because I've read so many beginning writer stories through yeah. all the workshops, but so far the ones that have come in I, I haven't recognized so for it's just probably been luck you know i'm sure at some point i will get one of my students you know that'll come popping through and i'll have to recuse yourself i'll have to decline and step yeah. back but uh you know it's just kind of yeah brandon sanderson had that happen a few years ago with darcy stone mm-hmm. she was his student he recognized it so i had to have to recuse myself i can't vote yeah yeah. yeah, I haven't had that happen yet, but I'm expecting it at some point because I, no I have so many, so many people that have taken classes from me. Yeah. 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 So now as an instructor, are there any particular things that when you go out or people write to you that they like the most common questions that you're, that you're asked to uh, hmm. provide instruction on or direction on? I don't think there's a, 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 a comment. Okay. So much. I. It's more on the publishing side, um, because the writing side, you know, is you got to learn how to pull readers into stories. And we have a class, a couple, two or three classes on that called depth. We call it depth. It's pulling the reader down in, you know, in depth. Mm. If you're only writing across the surface, the readers can leave. But if you got them at the bottom, bottom of the ocean, bottom of the lake, <laughs> it's a long ways before they can actually leave. And so, you know, that we treat, we teach that a lot, but, um, the, it's the it's the traditional publishing, the the four publishers that are left, mm-hmm. and and indie publishing, uh, where you do it yourself and you're completely in control and you learn how to do everything. Most of the questions come in in some fashion or another with that. I discur- I mean, I'm a person that sold 106 books to traditional publishers, right. okay, and edited for pocketbooks at time at different times. Um, I completely discourage all beginning writers going that way because the traditional publishers will buy all their rights. It'll take them years and years and years to get through the contract phase and the agent phase and all the other stuff. It just, it's just crazy how bad that system's become. I would never, I wouldn't be a writer if that system was the only system still. Over in India, you've got to learn how to do it yourself. So there's right. learning curves you know, yeah. that you've got to jump through. Um, but that, you get a lot more money. You can write anything you want, and you're free to, and if you make, a, if there's a mistake, it's your mistake. It's not some editor or some, you know, printer or something. I mean, I had one book in traditional publishing that came out that they, someone had gotten mad down in the production area, and they had just shifted every other chapter with another book. And so my book literally never got published, but it was just 
my book was sort of like every other chapter and they scattered a couple chapters. They were really mad and it went clear through, came out with the cover with my name on the cover. And, um, and of course they, it wasn't a big enough book to bother. They didn't reprint it. And so, you know, I'd written this entire book and it, no one could ever read it. And that's the kind of stuff that happens in traditional publishing where you make that, you know, you, 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 are, that. you are responsible for what your product you're putting out. So the, most of the questions I get are between going that way or going traditional. Indeed, yeah. yeah. And traditional, you can have your book published and it can be up and published within a couple of weeks. Um, traditional is going to take you two, three years just for the one book. So, I mean, if I was thinking, oh, I'm going to publish 70 books in my 70th year, and I was a traditional publisher. That no way. Did, no, I would be lucky to get three or four, um, you know, but I can do it in indie, and I make a lot yeah. more money. Yes. I make so much more money in indie than I ever did in traditional. So traditional is like, what, 10 to 15%? On your, on your royalties? Yes. Oh, it's, it, yeah, it's 8, 10, 12, depending on what your contract is. And then most people don't realize that there are di uh, discounts in it. So like if they sell your book in Costco, you get nothing. All those book users, writers get so happy that there's a big pallet of their books in Costco. And I'm going, no, you're not making a nickel. You will not make a nickel on that book. Your advances are basically what you make. If you get your book in Costco as an indie writer, which is very possible and easy to, fairly easy to do, um, you, know, you make it all. You, yeah. make, you make 70% and, or higher, depending. Um, a lot of the books we sell, we make 95%. There's only like a credit card fee. But that's through WMG. Through WMG. And we, we also sell on Amazon. We sell around the world. When I was in traditional, I was only selling North American. So only people in North America, Canada and the United States, could get my books. Well, in WMG, we sell worldwide. We have people reading our books in India and China and Brazil and South America and everywhere else. We're literally worldwide, just like you guys are. Yeah. Yeah. Indi now, you publish other authors too? Nope. Your own? Well, we do in our magazines. We have Fiction River and we have uh, Pulp House magazine, mm -hmm. um, where I'm the editor of Pulp House. And um, so we have other authors in that. And we do anthologies like last year we did a um, series of cat books. 12. We did a Kickstarter to start it, and then we did one book a month of cat stories. And it was great fun. Chris and I were the editors, and that had other authors in it. Mm -hmm. you know, um, so I know like that Kevin has got Wordfire Press, and he, he publishes. He publishes other people. And those are different numbers to he, what you've got because he's. He, he basically, it's, WMG is just me and Chris right. and then our magazines. They right. publish other people. Um, um, Kevin actually publishes other people's novels and everything right. else at Wordfire. It's a it's sort of a different a approach, um, but he publishes the same way we do. It's an indie. He's an no, indie no, but in terms of like how, yeah. as an author, how much are you going to get? Because you're as oh, an yeah. author going through Wordfire, you're not going to get ninety five percent. No, you're going to get fifty. Yeah. Of, yeah, of what Kevin makes, you're going to get half of what Kevin makes. Yeah, um, with. WMG, we make it all. Sure. It's just our stuff. We, but, now, we pay authors uh, up front at professional rates, kind of like what you guys mm -hmm. do, and then, and then with the writers and writers of the future, and you pay them one-time one fee, and then whatever the book makes, the book makes. Whether right. you lose money or make money is, you know, whatever the book makes. Right. That's the way we are. We pay one-time fee. Kevin actually pays royalties, and that's a difference. That's a, more of a traditional setup, mm -hmm. but um, he's regretted that, I think, a few times. <laughs> Because <laughs> of the paperwork and the bookwork, it's unbelievable how much yeah. that is. We we just get a check in. You just yeah. need to find the right app and yeah. download the app and just plug in the yeah, stuff. Yeah, no, and we, we just it out. We just <laughs> <laughs> not. Yeah. Well, you guys are are a one author press plus writers of the future, right? Yeah, that's what Chris and I were two author press plus Pulp House, right? You know, and and so that's that's what uh, that's what we do. Yeah, it's just kind of. We're very similar. You guys are indie press. We're an indie press. Right. Yeah. So now on taking it now to mm -hmm. the number of people in your situation in life are mm -hmm. few and far between. So we'll go back. Let's go back 30 years to where you okay. were a younger pup, mm -hmm. 40 years. Um, at the beginning of your career, which is what uh, most of the people listening to this will be, mm -hmm. you know, uh, more able to uh, appreciate. So... The industry's changed a lot now. Indie is definitely, from what we just talked at the beginning, this is, for your perspective, the way to go. It's about 80, 90% of the books being published now. So now on doing that, 
what are some of the, you know, the advice on how to do that in terms of preparing yourself for that as well? Because you can't just say, here's my book. Now I'm going to go to um, Amazon and upload my book and sure. sell it there. Sure you can. That's but exactly what you do. <laughs> but, but in terms of getting a book sold then versus mm-hmm. up just uploading it, there's other things that are incumbent upon you as an author yeah. to do these days that wasn't so important back with the traditional lines. Yeah. Well, it became important when the traditional started jettisoning things like their their sales force and all that. They used to have a sales force back in the previous century. They now don't have any sales force. Um, one of the things you have to do is um, basically 20 books. I, I know there's actually a writer's conference called 20 to 50, and that at 20, basically write 20 books, make 50,000 a year. Um, that's that title of their conference is actually pretty accurate. Um, there is a reason why, and it's got to be 20 major books, you know, and, and so it's novels or collections or novellas published, not short stories. They, mm-hmm. they help, but they're not considered in that 20. The 20 is for um, discovery, discoverability. And that's a phrase you'll hear being kicked around, but it's actually very accurate. Think of it this way. Um, if you're a, a brand new author, it's like setting up a brand new store. Okay, and so you're going to set up, I use a bakery, you're going to set up a bakery and you're going to put your sign out, you know, on the street mm-hmm. and a customer walks through the door and you've got all the shelves and everything on the wall, but you only got one product and it's sitting over on the shelf, one product. What does the customer do? Well, they come in and they turn around and go right back out because there's only one thing on all these empty shelves. Okay. It, when you get to 20 products on your shelves, because you're a store you got to think of yourself as a store. When you get 20 products on your shelf, suddenly it looks and the customers will stay. And they'll say, oh, I don't like, oh, but I like that one. And they'll start inter- going between products. That's really where you start getting that discoverability. So any of the work you do in the first five or 10 books is worthless. It's absolutely worthless. So my suggestion to run young writers is to just sit down and write and finish and put it up on Amazon and on Kobo, and Kobo will get it around the world, Amazon will get it some around the world, and then there's also a third spot to put it, which is called D2D. Um, it is, it is um, digital to something, but anyhow, they are all around, and they, ha- and they have all, of, they're an aggregator, and they basically will um, draft to digital, that's what it's called. Um, I knew I'd remember, the old memory, um, Draft2Digital. And they basically are an aggregator. And so you can put it up on Draft2Digital and then hit all kinds of buttons. And suddenly your book will be in India and it'll be in a distributor in Europe and it'll be, you know, and it's, and so we only load to three places, Amazon, Draft2Digital, and Kobo. And that's called putting it out wide and you get your book all over the world in all the English speaking countries that buy. And so it's very, very easy. Mm-hmm. And you want to have your book proofed. You don't need it edited. In fact, that's weird. And, and you don't need it edited. And you do not, um, you just need to make, find all the typos right. that you can find. So yeah. have a friend read it for typos. And then go from there. So the subject of, you know, this is Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what the heck? Yeah. Uh, so on Social media, having your own website, having mm-hmm. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, mm-hmm. YouTube. What, how does that play in from, you from your, your own, perspective? You need your own website for your author name so people can find you and find what books you've done. Mm-hmm. Um, I fall down on that a little bit. I don't keep my books up. But I, we also have a website for our press, WMG Publishing. And that is extremely well done. It's, you can search and search for my series or search under my name or search Science Fiction Dean, you know, and that sort of stuff. Um, it's very, and because we have about a thousand titles and, you know, and the blurbs and how, and then right there on that, it, it will click through to wherever you want to buy your book or whatever mode you want to buy it in. Um, the draft to digital also has a, uh, a great service that's free. And that is that you can, and I don't remember the name of it, but it's connected with draft to digital, um, books to read. That's what it's called. And you basically, you plug your book in there with your cover and on, and your, you know, your ebook, mm-hmm. and probably a PDF and it will, it's little spider goes out all over the world and finds where your book's available and puts it all in one, one thing. And so books to read, you, you, you can give that link to your customers 
and they'll click on it and they can find what device or what store they want it. It's all in one place. And it's called Books to Read. And draft digital does it for free. But uh, it, it's tremendous. It's made it so easy for all of us. You know, because when we started off, we had to say, well, you can get it in Amazon, you can get it here. And you had mm -hmm. to put all that on your website. Now you just put the Books to Read link and they can get it anywhere they want it in the world. And uh, it's really easy. So basically you gotta do that website. Good to have maybe a little social media presence, that helps, mm -hmm. um, and uh, so you can announce your book. But in your first 20 books, don't bother to promote. Just write, just be focusing on getting to be a better writer. And the better writer you become, and learn craft and read other writers a lot, and then once you get to that, you're, then you, when you get about 20, then you've got a store that has something on the shelves. And then you can say, hey folks, come in and look at my store. And then you can start, promoting and advertising your store and there's lots of ways and it's always changing you know yeah, yeah. definitely and changing. by the time you get 20 books written you'll have learned all this other stuff too yeah <laughs> it's just sort of you don't try to learn it all at once you just let it grow so this also helps having people like you or kevin mm -hmm. or all the other judges for the contest are mm -hmm. totally willing there to provide tips and, mm -hmm. and assistance oh we're always around yeah yeah one thing that we did also it turns me right at the uh, start of the pandemic, we we created our um, Aaron Hubbard Writers of the Future online workshop, mm -hmm. and we we did uh, thirteen video interviews, I think, with uh, Scott Card, mm -hmm. Tim Powers, and Dave Farland. That and was on craft, right? It was on craft. Yeah, the that's, they're, they're some of the best on craft. Those three, yeah. <laughs> that you just mentioned, yeah. yeah. And then the all the all around Hubbard essays that they're going to read as a winner, mm -hmm. and this is the first time we've actually had the workshop where. Everybody had to get through that online writing uh, course for coming here, so then they were able to even devote more time to business and the next level above that, because they, you know, they've already gone this now, so right. now they could actually get even more in depth. So stuff like what I'm going to say this afternoon to the gang, you know, about indie publishing and all of is, that. Is, they're ready yeah. for that now, and yeah. they, they can see that, because they've already, you know, we're taking it to the next level with them. Mm -hmm. But that's one thing about Writers of Future now, because we've had over 800 winners now over yeah. the, the 37 years. And I said, wow. you know, we just, year 38 finished on September 30th, and now we're, we're um, in the, the contest now. It has started, we're in the first quarter of year 39. <laughs> it just boggles my mind. I still remember walking across that stage, you know, up there. Actually, it wasn't, it wasn't much of a stage. It was right. like a step up, yeah, you know, a little platform they put, and it was, I mean, Robert Silverberg was standing up there, and, and Algis Budras had a tux on behind yep. the podium, and then... And then it was uh, um, Roger Zelazny and Greg Benford, who was really new at the time. I'm not very far behind Greg. And, you know, and, and uh, they were all just, and I walked up there and kind of went, wow, this is cool. And AJ said, Dean, I can trust you to do this. That's what he said on the set. He says, I want you to be the first to cross the stage, see if we have some mistakes that we're doing. Because it was the very first. And right. oh, it worked like clockwork, you know, AJ, yeah. you know, and AJ was over there behind the podium, you know, and it was, that was the first tux. Where now you guys are, it's all big yeah. event in Texas and everything. AJ was the first tux. He loved that, yeah. being able to do the tuxedo drill. Yeah. Yeah. So on, because um, I've talked to various people on, you know, so you're saying put 20 books, you know, have, have your mm -hmm. bakery shelf full on that. But in terms of um, conventions, how much was that part of your of the start of your career, attending conventions, conventions? building fan, it building was, a fan it was, base? It was a different world back then. Um, I sold a whole bunch of, all, I, I had an agent, but my agent never sold a book. I sold all 106 of my traditional books myself. Or I was called by a publisher and said, Dean, would you do this? That was a different world back in the 80s and 90s. Um, completely different. It doesn't function that way anymore. Um, and we had to go to conventions. I would be sitting at a dinner and, um, and end up selling a book at that dinner. Um, now everything has to, you know, go through committees and all the other stuff. And there's so few publishers now mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, traditional publishers, that it's just not worth it. Um, going out and meeting other people and writers and things like that, that's still worth it. But the conventions have changed. Now you want to be at something like Comic-Con or, or, you know, or uh, Dragon, I found Dragon, Dragon Con Dragon and Salt Lake City Fanics are my two favorite. Were there exactly huge book readers there? Absolutely, those are two of the best. And um, um, the old science fiction conventions and stuff now are more—they've kind of gone a different way, and they're not—not not a lot of the pros are going. 
and uh, which is really sad. I kind of miss it. But for, I mean, in 1992, I think was the year that we finally decided that's too much, is that we went to 26 conventions in a year. It means every other weekend we were at a convention, usually Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But we had to. That, mm -hmm. was, that was part of our business back then. Now you do not need to do that. Now everything's online and videos and everything else. But I would go to the Comic-Con, to um, Dragon Con, to Salt Lake. Um, there's four or five that I would go to. I don't go to them much anymore. Is but Gen Con up where you came? Where yeah. Not so much? Uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not much that side of things. Yeah. I did a lot of gaming novels and stuff, but I don't. Ones that we're pushing now is the licensing expo, which is in Las Vegas in May. And um, we will be there. We'll have a big suite there. Um, we'll have a lot of the writers. One of, one of our big workshops in our, in our online thing is aiming for the licensing. So we will have people understanding what, because everything in writing is licensing. Mm -hmm. In fact, you, you you don't sell anything. You license everything. And uh, and so we're really focusing on the licensing expo. That's our next big push. And we were just starting to push at it. And pandemic. And pandemic, yeah. So it's been a couple of years now. We're Now we're trying to retrain and get ourselves back up and thinking and getting the writers for coming. So we'll have a big suite where everybody... You know, the writers can come up and talk about what they saw at the licensing that day in because it's so huge that, you know, you can't see it all. In fact, I was there for three days the year before the pandemic, and I didn't begin to see it all. Um, wow. And, you know, a couple, we have a, a, a group, a couple other people and I are, are together. We're going to be forming a company if we can get this license out of CBS, and we're trying to get the Twilight Zone magazine license. And so we've been in negotiations with CBS for the magazine. And, you know, we haven't got very far yet because we were just getting, and then pandemic. Boom. And uh, so we will be back in that and trying to work on it. But we're trying to pull the magazine, Twilight Zone magazine license out of the Twilight Zone stuff that CBS has and just fire back up. Because in the um, late 70s and early 80s, there was a Twilight Zone magazine. And I sold stories to it. And, um, and I, so I'll be the editor because I edit Pulp House, which is basically Pulp House is Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, except it's under a different name because uh, I buy Twilight Zone type stories when I can find them. Um, and I would be the editor and this, we'd have this group of people that have other companies that were going to come together and form another company just for the magazine if we can get the license. So that's the kind of thing that we do. And as writers, um, you take your stuff in and, you license it. You can if you get the right kind of artwork deal, where you guys are having your own artwork. I assume you get the full license on all the artwork. Um, you know, basically, uh, you can do anything from mugs to T-shirts to games to, you know, we tried our first game and it got stuck in China. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having to refund everybody on the game for one of Chris's novels, Diving, um, but it was a really nifty little card game with dice and all that, and it was really really cool and had great art and everything else and. It's somewhere between here and China. We can't find it. Wow. Yeah, can't find it. And I've finally given up. It's been a year. We've been. It got shipped. I mean, it got sent to China in November of last year, so almost a year. And then three months went by, and that company closed because of the pandemic. And so we moved it to another company. They theor theoretically shipped it in May. Wow. And, and it's only it's only a thousand copies. And so we're we're going to stay in the states from now on out. We're going it, to it's more expensive per unit, but by the time you get all the sh problems, you know, in this whole thing. So our first attempt at a game license for one of our works did not go well. Right, <laughs> did not go well. But we're learning. That's what you do. You you yeah. make mistakes and you learn and then go on. And then for you, you take it and you make a. Yeah. One of your uh, lessons that people can sign up so yeah. you can as soon as we learn the, from our mistakes. As soon as we get the full lesson, <laughs> we'll <laughs> figure out how to do it right first. We've got we to gotta do yeah. some. And so we're going to go to the licensing conference too. So that's really where we're headed. And that's where the modern world is headed is, is the writers are – we make put it this way. We do a lot of book sales mm -hmm. because we're in, around the world. But Chris and I make far more money licensing than we ever do on book sales, which is a license also. But it's a license to Amazon to license our book, you know, to, to right. other people. We make far more money in licensing than we ever do in book sales. Um, and we make a lot of money also in crowdfunding. We do Kickstarters. We do six Kickstarters a year. 
on for different projects. Chris had a book she wrote in the pandemic just because she wanted to escape. And it was in her um, um, uh, Spade Palatin series, which actually wasn't a series, it was the first book. And, and it's, it's a mystery set at a science fiction convention. Really fun. Yeah. A, a, a 90s science fiction convention. And uh, even though she has it today, the convention is like the old 90s convention. So it's really fun. She didn't know what to do with it. We were just going to publish it. And we said, well, let's do a Kickstarter on it. And so we put it up on Kickstarter and included some workshops and other stuff with it, you know, because we have that side too. And um, it made $30,000. I mean, that's if she'd have sold that to a traditional publisher, she'd have made five or ten, you know, mm -hmm. because it's just it was a one one off, one shot series that nobody even knew about, and she had a few short stories in it, and that was about it. And she one book, put it up on Kickstarter, got all this promotion on Kickstarter. She made over almost thirty thousand dollars on that, and then the pre-orders on the book, because we sent the book to all the Kickstarter people early, the pre-orders to actually buy the book just exploded. And it was so, how, so define the, how does that actually work? So mm -hmm. I'm not that I've not done a Kickstarter myself. Oh, you guys need to be <laughs> doing Kickstarters. <laughs> yes. So how does that work? Because you've got, I thought people were paying so that you could have the money to make a product. Well, that's one of the things that people do. But no, we already had this book done. It was already completely put together and finished and everything else. And then we said, you want to read it early? Back to Kickstarter. And then we have other products on there, too, because we do have the big teaching wing of WMG. WMG makes all the money. I make no money off the teaching. I do it basically for free. But it helps. Go, it goes into the company, so mm -hmm. we can do lots of other stuff and have all of our employees and everything. But um, So we had workshops that we literally gave away. I gave away $900 in workshops in stretch goals. Because the thing just kept hitting stretch goals. We never we expected to do ten thousand dollars on that Kickstarter. It went to way way higher. So we kept adding stretch goals, and so we would give another book away and another one of what we call pop ups, which are basically an hour long lecture of me just on one specific topic. We gave I think well nine hundred dollars at one hundred and fifty dollars each. We gave that many pop-ups away in the stretch goals. And so people were going, oh, wow. And then they would start spreading the word. Hey, if you get on this, you get all these things, you know. And uh, we have a Kickstarter going right now for uh, Holiday Spectacular, which is a, um, as, as we talk here in, at Writers of the Future, we just launched it yesterday. And um, um, our ask was $2,500. Um, we went by that in just under an hour. <laughs> and just boom, went right by it. Um, and basically what that is, is it's an advent calendar of fiction. Um, Chris edits, edits it. It's all original stories from all kinds of writers, some of the top writers working in short fiction. And we, give, we send to the people from the 25th of November, which is American Thanksgiving, to the 1st of January. They get a story in their device every, every day. day. And Chris has an essay to an essay introducing it, saying this is a dark story. So if you're not in a good mood, you might not want to read this today. Maybe save it for when you're feeling better, you know. Or this is a light, fun story. Or this is, and then they go into three collections too, and uh, and so there's like three collections, and then this advent calendar, and we're kickstarting it. We're hoping that it does pretty well, you know. Pays for your Christmas present for Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't hear new mother right. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't 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 give her ideas. <laughs> huh. So on um, yeah, the whole thing of of how things have changed because that's, mm -hmm. I mean, even when I started doing this podcast three years ago, so much has changed and oh. continues to change continuously yeah. in in publishing. So it used to be attending conventions and mm -hmm. um, was a way to go to to meet an audience. Mm -hmm. Um, what about book signings, whether they're virtual or in-store? They're not worth it. They're not worth it. They're not worth the time to set up. They're not worth the, uh, the return on investment. They never really were. Um, I didn't know this as a young writer until I was standing in a New York office, my, one of my editor's offices, and I had just got hired for doing, to do Strange New Worlds. And uh, one of the assistants came in, and they said, so-and-so is talking about wanting to do a tour. And, you know, signing to her. And the editor talked and they said, well, talk, bring so-and-so in here. And I'm standing there. They just sort of like forgot I was, I, I was now part of their staff. Right. You know, and I'm standing there and I'm listening. And they go, well, should we do this? And they said, oh, give him a mercy tour. You know, basically it was to please the author, give him three or four cities, 
and let him do five or six bookstores and signing. And it was a mercy tour. It was a part of their production, their promotion budget at that point, because it's totally worthless. It did nothing. Um, how you find readers now is just put out good books and be online and, and be sociable. And, and if you're on social media, remember that, that the word is social. Um, you need to not just talk about your book. You need to be, you know, buy my book, buy my book. No, you don't do that. You talk about your cats or you talk about whatever's interesting to you as a social thing. And then every so often, oh, I got a new book out. And, and then if they like you and you have, like that, then they'll go and pass the word and get it. And, and it's word of mouth. And there's an old cliche in publishing. Um, the best promotion for your book is your next book because they'll, someone will find your next book and then they'll go back and read your previous book. And boy, does mm. that work. <laughs> I, had, yeah. I, I had always said that and I'd always knew that, but it wasn't until Code Poker Gang took off that I was already 10 books in and they, weren't, they were selling a couple books a month, each one of them. So, and I was just writing them because I loved them. And, you know, and I, I wasn't writing them all one right after another and doing all that silliness. I was writing one and then six months or eight months later, I'd write another one because you know, I write a novel every month. And so they just kind of trickled along. And pretty soon I looked up and there was 10 of them. And then um, when Chris got sick and I was we were moving to Vegas, um, basically what occurred was Gwyneth, one of the people that worked for us, she's fantastic. She said, can I do a, some promotion on this? Because I told him, no, no promotion. You know, I'm a science fiction writer. I didn't, wasn't known for writing mystery. And she said, can I do a book bub on this? And I said, well, sure. Go ahead. If you see if you can get one. Well, she got one. Never told me about it at all because I didn't want to know about anything. And one day, one morning, Chris woke me up and she said, you're number one on Amazon. <laughs> and I'm like, what? I had no idea. I said, was it the last Thunder Mountain that just took off? And she said, oh, no, it was one of your cold poker. It was your cold, first cold poker gang novel. And I'm like, why? It's been selling like three or four copies a month for nine years. She said, no, it's gone to number one. And then, of course, all the other books. And we made more in sales on that one than we did in all of our book sales for the previous year. We did more in two months. And if I had, didn't have those 10 books out, you know, when it exploded, when its time came, it wouldn't have had wouldn't that, have done it. it wouldn't have if I'd have been promoting the heck out of it yeah. way back, and it would have been, oh, that's that book. But I, nobody even knew it existed. And suddenly they were, oh, there's a whole new series. We didn't want to Smith. Oh, we didn't know it was there. Mm -hmm. And it just, and exploded. And that's what happens in publishing. Yeah. But you did mention BookBub because that is a definite uh, Promotion. promotional tool that it has proven very effective specifically for the publishing industry. Absolutely. It's wonderful. And you should be reading as a young writer. I would recommend that you read the books that are coming out and the blurbs on the books coming out from BookBub every day, um, all our newsletters, um, But um, because that's a learning experience all by itself. But don't try for a BookBub until you're up around the 20, because yeah. otherwise you got nothing to sell. You know, right. they buy one book and then you're done. You know, it's like, well, and then they don't remember you because readers nowadays are very, they, f they forget yeah. really quickly. But if you've got 10 books and you got them reading for a month of your stuff. Yeah, your name, they're going to That's remember. why the 20. Yeah. Okay, good. So um, this has been great having this chance to, to talk with you. So one more time, how people can actually find your books besides waiting for the next book, bub. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, finding uh, information about me, deanwesleysmith.com. Okay. Deanwesleysmith.com. The best place is, is my publishing site, wmgpublishinginc.com. And that is completely searchable for my books, Chris's books, our magazines, everything we're doing. But on DeanWesleySmith.com, you can also, there are links to how to get to the workshops. And uh, there's a curriculum. There's all kinds of stuff on that. I blog every day. I have, a, I have a streak going now that's a little over nine years that I haven't missed a day, which considering computer outages and internet outages and big storms and things like that, I have not missed a day for nine years. Wow. Now, some of the blogs are, yeah, I'm still here. I'm still alive. Go away. And then other <laughs> blogs are, I'm, like right now, I'm writing a book online, a, non a nonfiction book online um, that is, uh, 
I'm sadly taking traditional publishing apart. And, but I'm doing it one chapter at a time, and like every other week or so, I put up another chapter, and so people can follow along and read the entire book online. Wow. And things like that. So DeanWesleySmith.com or WMGPublishingInc.com. Great. Well, thank you very much, Dean. Thank it's been great speaking it's with you. It's been fun. been fun talk. Great. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. And it's also been globally syndicated on the United Public Radio Network. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Owen Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thanks very much, Dean. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.